Good morning. My name is Viv, if I haven't met you before, um, and it's my joy to be opening up God's Word. It's also a joy to be up here and not have paper planes thrown at me. If you were here last Sunday, you would remember. Um, it was a joy to meet together last Sunday to gather um, as the whole of all saints. Um, but we're, yeah, we're diving back into the series of Exodus this week, and we're looking at passages which, to some of you, might be very familiar you might have grown up on them, you might know them back to front, little details. So before we start, how about I pray? How about I ask that God would give us eyes and ears to see what he is doing through his word. So would you join with me? Heavenly Father, we long to hear you speak through your word. And thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to gather, to be able to sit under your word and to hear you speak. God, these passages to some are quite a familiar um, passage, quite a familiar story. So we ask that you would give us ears and eyes that are afresh to hear what you have to say. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, for us, we're getting close to Christmas, aren't we? When you go into the shops, Mariah Carey's going to start playing, whereas some people like to say Messiah Carey. She's quite the, uh, the popular person at Christmas. But it probably is also a time when you guys when you start to question whether you can depend on someone or something to deliver, um, whether you can depend on that unknown company or that unknown person to give you that present, that Christmas present on time, or maybe you're, you're wondering, can I depend on you or can I depend on this person or this thing in these various areas? Maybe it's about the person who's navigating you to a certain destination but as they're navigating you, they don't know their left from their right, so they do this to figure out which way is their left and their right. Maybe it's, um, you know, that maybe it's your parents and them saying that doing chores is good for you. Or maybe, it's actually right now, you're wondering if you can depend on me not to be heretical. It could be. I reckon that it's in those moments that we remember that not everyone thinks the same way that we do. And when people don't think the same way and act the same way that we do, it leaves us guessing, right? It leaves us perhaps wondering whether you can depend on that person, whether you can trust in that person. And for you, it might be God who's the one you're wondering whether you can depend on, whether you can trust in. You might be here and you might not even know who this God is and exploring who he is, and if that's you, we're thankful you're here. Um, or you might be here today and you know who God is. You know who God is, but you struggle to trust in him. You struggle to trust in him when things seem unexpected and they seem different to how you thought they might have gone. You know he's powerful, you know he's in control. Yet when push comes to shove, when you're left unsure of what he's doing, it's those moments that can leave you and I wondering, why is this happening? God, what are you doing? God, are you with me? Can I depend on you? And it's here that we pick up the story in the book of Exodus. Um, two weeks ago, if you cast your mind back um, to our last time in the book of Exodus, we saw how Israel came to the end of the ten plagues. They're freed from Egypt. They're brought out of a land of slavery and in Exodus 13, verse 17, Pharaoh finally let the people go. 
But as God leads them out of Egypt, you see the people begin to question God. Things don't look how they should in their mind. So they, they question if they can trust, they question if they can depend on him, and they begin to grumble. And so today as we continue in our series in Exodus, we're going to see this gracious God who calls a grumbling people to trust in him. To trust in the God who provides. To trust in the God who leads. To trust in the God who saves. He calls a grumbling people to trust. For a people who, like us, are in between a promise that has been realised and a promise that is yet to be. So it's my prayer that as we dive into this book right now, as we look at God's word, that you would encounter this same God and that you, and that you would grow in your trust of him. So let's dive in and let's look at the God who we can trust. And we're going to see that the God we can trust in is the one who saves. He's the one who saves. Now, I'm sure we've all heard of the flight or fight response, right? You know, when you get into a certain icky situation and your back's up against the wall, what do you do? Do you get the fist ready or do you panic and run? Because it's the situations we find the Israelites in. In Exodus chapter 14 verse 9, if you have your Bibles open, why don't you look at 14 verse 9 with me. The Egyptians, they had chased the Israelites to the sea. The enemy they had just escaped from had cornered them. And so in verse 11, they grumble and they say this to Moses. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. It's here that the Israelites are they're left with the option of both fight and flight seemingly taken away from them. They've been led to this place where they're trapped, where there's nowhere to go. And I'm sure for them they're questioning, God, what are you doing? Is this all you're going to give us, these two options? Death or slavery? Well, no, those aren't the only two options. Look at chapter 14, verse 13 with me. Moses says this, do not be afraid, stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, will never, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. No fight, no flight, but simply stand firm. Be still and you'll see his salvation. God says to a grumbling people, I've got you. This battle that you've got ahead, you don't need to do anything. You can't do anything. I will fight for you. That's what he says. And yet for the Israelites, I can only imagine that it seemed ridiculous. Like here you're standing trapped by the sea, an enemy full of soldiers and chariots is charging at you. Can't imagine what the dust of cloud behind them looks like. And God says, just stand firm. 
Be still. Yet what they probably didn't see is that on their own, there is no way out. You're not going to win against that enemy. No chance. And you're not going to win against the sea. Like if you try, it'll probably be an interesting episode of Bondi Rescue. People just needing to be rescued out in the sea. So God in verse 16, he comes through because he's the God who saves. He tells Moses, raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. So Moses, he holds his staff over the sea and God uses both the miraculous and the natural to make a way for his people. A miraculous act where his people walk on dry ground, where the enemy gets swept away and God delivers his people. He's a God who says, stand firm and I will fight for you. And a God for us who on this side of the cross has shown us that he has fought for us. He's won. He's won our battle. He's won against sin and death. Jesus is the one who enters the waters of judgment. Jesus is the one who's crushed for us so that we might be the ones on dry ground. And it means for you and me on this side of the cross, if you trust in what he has done, we can be people who walk through life with our judgment that we deserve behind us. And yet I wonder for us how often we look to the things that we do our devotional lives, our serving, our actions, how many people we share the gospel with. I think how many times we point to these things as what can win against the enemy, what can fight the battle for us, what can fight against sin and the world. I think we often can think that doing is trusting. That doing for God is trusting. And yet here God says, Standing firm is trusting in him. Trusting that he will fight for us. Trusting that he has won the battle in Jesus. As we stand firm in him, that is faith. Now, I'm not saying that because Jesus has done everything, don't do anything. You know, kick your feet up, sink back into the couch we should take responsibility for what we are responsible for. Like, it could mean for you saying that I am responsible for being a good employee, but I'm not responsible for what my God, for what my boss does. Sorry, hey, aren't you God? I'm not responsible for how my boss acts. You leave that to God. You stand firm and be still in God and leave the rest to God. Or it could be for you saying, I'm responsible for my sin but I'm not responsible for achieving forgiveness. You stand firm in God and trust that he has made it possible to be forgiven. And so moving on, we see in chapter 14, verse 31, 
The Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians. The people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. That is a people that has been rescued and a people that has been delivered. And it's why they break out into song and praise God in um, chapter 15. It's why Miriam couldn't help but grab a tambourine and start dancing. Why don't we bring tambourines back on a Sunday? Bit of dance, bit of tambourines, Sally's cane. But in all seriousness, it's why we're people that sing and praise God for what he's done. It's why we're people that sing. We're not just here to tick it off a list. For you and me, it should be a natural and right response to sing his praises for what he's done. To not want to hold back, to want to sing loudly, to want to praise him. I'd love to dive into more of that, but we've got a lot of, uh, a lot more of the passage to get through. But we've seen that God has saved his people. That he's the only one who can save them. And it's here that things begin to change though. Despite, you know, what God's done in the past, despite what he's done for his people, they struggle to trust in him for the future. Um, a certain housemate I live with, they're paranoid about undercooked chicken. Um, and we often share the cooking, and we often cook chicken a lot. And no matter, no matter how many times I purposefully overcook the chicken, like you can see, this chicken is overcooked right from the get-go. They keep checking their chicken, like right in front of me. I'm not going to name names, but it is frustrating. <laughs> and it's, I think it just points to the fact that we, can, we all have this ability to not trust someone after they've proven themselves to be trustworthy. The amount of times I've overcooked chicken, it's unbelievable. But here we are with the Israelites that struggle to trust in God. They struggle to trust in God's leading, despite him having already led them to salvation. So we're going to see that they struggle to trust in a God who leads. Now, God's leading here in chapter 13 to 17 None of it is an accident. He hasn't made a wrong turn. He hasn't guided them down a wrong, dodgy alley. But it's clear that in Exodus 13, look at verse 17 in your Bibles, God says this about his people. If they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. And if you have any doubt that, you know, this is an accident, he look at verse 21, he did it on purpose. God's not just leading them through a few little commands here and there, but God is the one who clearly leads them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God intentionally leads his people. He leads them as he is aware of his people. He gets them. He knows that, you know, if they're led through the land with the Philistines there, they probably would have wanted back. He knew they lacked the faith to face the battle. And so he leads them the long way. He leads them the scenic way and he leads them to salvation. And for us, it can be, it can so often be God's way, right? It's his way of showing us mercy, of showing us kindness, 
For the Israelites, he knew that they are a weak and tired people. 400 years of slavery. That would take it out of you. And so he wanted to lead them. He wanted to show, to shape them, to grow them. And so he takes them the long way. He leads them the long way in the wilderness. Because he's a God who's so aware of his people, aware of what is ahead for us. And he often leads us in ways that to us aren't comfortable. In ways that can seem like we're going the long way. And he guides us that way with our good and his purposes in mind. And he calls us to trust in that. And for us, this side of the cross, we we have something way better than a cloud and fire to lead us. I mean, it would be pretty cool. I'd love to pray, God, where would you like me to go? And poof, fire appears or a cloud appears. It'd be It'd be pretty cool. But we have the person of the Holy Spirit to do that. We have the Holy Spirit in the Word. God uses the Holy Spirit in his Word to guide us. Because as God's children, you and I have this promise of a God who shows himself through his word and spirit, which you see in Romans 8, verse 14. We have a God who leads and reveals more of himself, more of himself, more of what he longs for through his word and his spirit, any time and any place. Yes, we can trust in that, right? We can praise and thank God for leading us to salvation. We can thank him for leading us in the day to day. Yet we still often question him, don't we? He saves us and we still question him. We can grumble about his approach. And we see it with the Israelites. They grumble a few times. Look at um, chapter 14. In chapter 14, they respond and they say they'd rather be slaves in Egypt and then face the risk of being killed. In chapter 15, they complain that God isn't providing water for them. In chapter 16, they say the food back in Egypt was better. And in chapter 17, after all that God had provided, they say he has it out to kill them. I mean, talk about a reversal here, from celebrating being freed to wanting back. after all of God's miraculous acts to save, to provide, to lead, all they could do was continue to question his goodness. And yet in that, we don't have a God who abandons us when we grumble, a God who gives up on his people, but he leads us in seeing that we can trust him and we can trust the God who provides. And he doesn't just provide once, after the grumbling. But in our passage, he does it three times. God comes to meet the needs of his people with water and food three times. Um, In chapter 15, right after the jubilant praise of God with tambourine and dance, the Israelites set out into the wilderness and after a few days, they come across no drinkable water. And you'd think the only way to respond after being saved, after having two walls of sea either side of you as you walk through dry ground, the only way to respond after that is coming before the Lord in prayer. You know, you've seen him do it before. You'll ask him again. Well, in verse 24, 
we see that the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? And I love how realistic God's word is about how we respond to him. Aren't you glad that God's word is realistic? It doesn't set these high expectations. I mean, they went from a tambourine praise fest and three days later, they're grumbling. They're going, God, you're not providing for me. They're going, God, where's my water? Are you with me? And for us, well, we're no better off. I think we can go from singing of God's goodness, singing his praises here on a Sunday, and three, not even three days later, but three hours later, I can find myself complaining about my dinner, about the next day, about the week ahead. We easily lose perspective, and we focus on what we don't have rather than what we do have in God, and we grumble. God provides and yet his people test him. They doubt in the God who has been sufficient in the past and they doubt that he'd be sufficient now. And until he comes through, they say, you know, we won't trust you. They suspend faith in him. And to do so, it's inherently sinful. It's toxic, it spreads and it hardens hearts. So what does God do? Well, for the parents here, I'm sure you can relate to this. It'd be like giving your children food um, and for them to say back to you, this food that you've cooked, it's actually not cooking. It's warming up of food. Believe me, I've said this, and it doesn't go well. But time and time again, aren't we glad God is God? That he's different to us. In verse 25, instead of punishment, instead of God being annoyed and frustrated with his people, he doesn't punish them, but he actually provides. He provides a miracle that rearranges creation, as wood is used to make water sweet. And then in verse 27, we see that his people, this image of his people arriving at a slice of paradise with 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees in the wilderness. It's the image of a God who remains near, who remains near despite their grumbling. It's an image of grace continuously overcoming grumbling. And yet it's not God being a pushover. Instead, God tests his people. In commentator, Philip Ryken says, there is a purpose for this. He says, if being delivered out of slavery was about Israel's salvation, the time in the wilderness was about their sanctification. God longs for his people not just to trust him to save, but to trust him in their walk with him, to grow in that trust. And it's why in verse 25 we see that God tested his people he tests whether they're going to trust him or not. And it's why this same process continues on and on in the next two stories in chapter 16 and 17, with the bread, with the manna from heaven and the water from the rock. And each time the Israelites, they question his goodness and they go so far as to say, what we had in slavery was better. 
It would be like us saying to God, I don't want you. I don't follow you. I don't want to follow you anymore unless you come through with the goods. And it sounds painful, doesn't it? It sounds painful and yet God provides in these moments. He provides in the wilderness where his people can develop their trust of him. Where his people might open their eyes to see his, his depend, their dependence on him. That he is the God who we can place our trust in. That he's a God we can surrender all to. That he's a God who we can flourish in. And so he provides the choice to trust and obey or to grumble. And it's what God does for us. It's what God does for us in the wilderness because just like the Israelites, this is where we stand. We stand in between his saving work for us on the cross and when he'll return, when he'll make all things right. And it's here that Jesus shows us grace upon grace upon grace that we might trust in him. Yes, the wilderness is hard. Yes, it will mean moments of testing. But God is near. Time and time again, God provides and he invites you to trust in that. So surely the third time is a charm, right? Surely the Israelites get this. Well, look at chapter 17, verse 1. Once again, the Israelites, they're in need. And once again, they don't trust in God. They grumble and they went back in Egypt. But this time things escalate. Instead of grumbling, they start to quarrel in verse 7. It's an escalation. And yet, this pattern continues that God provides. He responds with grace to the grumbling. And in verse 6, Moses is told to strike the rock on which God stands. And as he strikes it, water flows from it and quenches their thirst. And it's a dramatic image. It's a dramatic image that points us to an even greater act. Um, the passage we read, had read out for us early in 1 Corinthians 10 says this. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. What happened at Massa in um, chapter 17, it points us forward. It points us forward to the one who's poured out for us that we might ultimately be satisfied. It points us forward to the one who in the wilderness was tempted but did not sin. That told his people in Matthew 6, don't worry, I'll provide. The one who remained near to the ones who grumbled about him. And the one who died and rose that we might be saved, that we might be freed from the enemy of sin. Jesus on the cross is the image for us as grumblers. It's the image that we need. The image of the one who provides and satisfies. It's an image of the only one who can fully satisfy us. So when you're tempted to say, God, I, I want this prayer answered, or God, I need this thing and it feels like your goodness isn't there for me, know that God has given all he can in Jesus. Because in Jesus, we have the promise that he has done what we cannot do. 
He has fought for us. He has won the battle. In Jesus, we have the assurance of the God who draws near. A God who draws near in our grumbling and provides daily and ultimately provided for your greatest need. This is the good news for you today. God is working everything for your good as you love him. It might seem like he takes you the long way, that he brings you through different seasons, but you can trust him. Trust that he hasn't held back anything from you, but he's given all he can in Jesus. So let me pray and ask that God would help us grow in our trust of him. Heavenly Father, you are the one who has saved us. You are the one who leads and provides. And God, I pray that in our grumbling, we would look to Jesus as the one who has satisfied us, who has provided, who has saved. God, in those moments, would we cling to you? Would we look to you for help? Would you help us grow in our trust of you? And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.